Hello, this is Patrick Ridgel, and once again, I'm here with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wall. Hello, Tom. Welcome back. Hello, Patrick. Nice to be back. So you've just written the Transamerica 2021 Market Outlook, which is a quite extensive but still very engaging paper. Uh, it's a great read as always, and I think it covers pretty much everything investors would want or would need to know about the market environment in 2021. Thank you. And before we jump into all of that, I think maybe we should take a minute and just acknowledge 2020 is almost over. Yes, let's toast to that. Very much so. Now, now looking back, how would you begin to summarize 2020, if, if that's even possible? I mean, what stands out to you first as we all try to take perspective on this past year? Yeah, it's really uh, overwhelming when, when you look back on everything. I mean, to think that at this time last year, we were talking about a lot of things, but COVID-19 was not one of them. Yeah. Uh, wasn't even in our vocabularies yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I, when, I, when I think back over this past year, and, and not just from an investment perspective, of course, I guess I'll always remember three things. Okay, what would they be? Uh, first, uh, remembering all those we lost uh, due to the virus, which is so sad. Mm -hmm. uh, as we speak, that's more than 280,000 people here in the U.S. and 1.5 million people globally. And of course, that's still moving higher. Yeah. The tragedy of these numbers will always be beyond words to all of us. So first and foremost, uh, you know, we should remember all of those losses with a heavy heart. Yeah, of course. Uh, and, and second, against this tragedy and crisis, you know, there were real heroes in our midst, uh, you mm -hmm. know, healthcare and frontline workers putting their lives on the line to save others. And the great minds of science who somehow came up with vaccines, and not just regular vaccines, but 90-plus percent efficacy vaccines in about six months' time. Right. I mean, in my opinion, that has to rank as the greatest accomplishment in medical history. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely incredible. Uh, and, and finally, of course, in the investment world, which you know I was closest to all year, the tremendous economic shock and market volatility we endured last spring and how the economy and the markets came out of that uh, with a lot of help from the Fed, of course, I should say. But but still, I, I think a lot of investors of all portfolio sizes, big and not so big, professionals mm -hmm. and individuals with their personal assets, I, I think they should all feel very proud of how they handled the historic volatility and uncertainties inherent in this past year particularly in staying rational at various times when the markets were not so rational. So so in that regard, I just I just want to give you a little props here from earlier in the year. Oh boy. <laughs> so I mean I went back and I listened to our discussion from late March, you know, which was the height of the hysteria. The markets were bottoming, but of course no one no one knew that at the time. And nobody seemed to really know how bad it was going to get. And you said, and I'm gonna quote here, be prudent but be opportunistic. The market will quickly discount a recovery once it's in place. It's not about calling a bottom. It's about identifying long-term entry points, and stocks right now are at those entry points. I mean, that's what you said the last week in March. Well, uh, thank you for remembering that, Patrick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I try to earn my keep every now and then. Well, well you sure did at that moment. So, <laughs> Well, thank you. Um, uh, but in, in all seriousness, uh, we all lived through real history this year. And, and when that final history is written, I think it will be all about those brave people we just mentioned who fought COVID-19 yeah. in hand-to-hand combat, so to speak, 
in hospitals and people's homes and the labs and in clinical trials. Th- this past year was really all about them. All right. Very well said. Very well said. Okay. Now, turning back to investing in the markets and your market outlook for 2021, where do you want to start? Uh, yeah. So uh, a big picture opening message we have is we think there could be a storm before the calm. That's an interesting way to put it. Yes. This second wave of COVID-19 is inflicting exponentially rising damage, and it still could be at least a few more months before we get widespread distribution of the vaccines. So we probably need to brace for some slowing of economic growth in the early months of 2021, which, given the tremendous move we've had in stocks these past nine months, could create some downside risk and volatility in the beginning of the year, particularly if we don't soon see an economic relief and stimulus package from Congress. But we think in the spring and summer months, as the vaccines really start to get out to the general public, combined with continued low interest rates and eventual stimulus from Congress, we could start to see the economy really reaccelerate in the second half of the year, and that, would, that could be very good for stocks. How good? Our 2021 price target in the S&P 500 is 4200 No kidding. That's, that's up a good bit from where we are right now. Yes, that's a total return in the low to mid-teens. Well, that, that, that'd be a really good year. Uh, yes, and remember, that's how we're sort of finishing up this year in terms of total gains. And at one point this year, we were down 30% back in March. So if we do see downside volatility in the early months, perhaps due to slowing economic growth in the first quarter, there's a very good chance, in our opinion, that could prove to be a buying opportunity. So if we do get some downside in the early months, which after this big move we just had, that sure seems possible, what would move stocks from there? Well, uh, potentially a few things. Uh, We still haven't entirely dug ourselves out of the economic hole from last spring. So I think once the vaccines are in circulation – and the world begins a path toward normalcy, uh, business restrictions and social distancing uh, eases up some, and Congress finally passes a stimulus package, let's say in the $2 trillion area, then we could see something like 6% GDP growth in the second half of the year, putting us pretty close to the pre-virus aggregate GDP levels of 2019. And and that could be a big deal for the markets. Back to where we were last year at this time, at this time next year. Yes, uh, that sounds a little less impressive when you say it like that. But <laughs> but bear in mind, at the worst point of the economic shock last spring, consensus expectations were that we wouldn't get back to those previous aggregate GDP levels until the end of 2022 or even 2023. And yeah. remember, when we do get back, interest rates will be lower than where they were before. Mm-hmm. And fiscal and monetary stimulus will probably stick around for a while. Mm-hmm. So recovery starts to transition into expansion, and you have stocks looking comparatively more attractive because earnings are moving higher, and those higher earnings yields are looking more favorable because they're being compared to lower interest rates. So it sort of sounds like the stars could be aligning here. Uh, yes, they could be. Yeah, but But there could be some pain first. Could be. Could be. That's where we could see the storm before the calm I just alluded to during that time, let's say in the Mm -hmm. first quarter of 2021. And that's when investors should probably be patient and opportunistic. COVID-19 case numbers 
are going to get even more horrific in the next few months. Until the vaccine is out there, it could soon be tough to see how economic growth does much of anything or even stays positive in the early months of the year. But after that, the path should clear in a manner that could be very good for stocks. Positive vaccine impact on the case numbers, rising economic growth, rising earnings growth, low interest rates, fiscal and monetary stimulus. We can see it all on the other side of the bridge. We just have to get over that bridge in the next few months. So going back and forth here between the economy and stocks, which I guess you think are pretty intertwined right now. Yes, they are. Where are you on economic growth in the U.S. for 2021, particularly after the crazy up and down numbers we just saw in 2020? Yeah, very good question, Patrick. We are in print with an estimate of plus 4% annual GDP growth for 2021. Now, that's assuming we have a low growth or potentially even a no growth first quarter. But after that, we think we could average about 6% economic growth or better for the rest of the year. This is well above even pre-COVID-19 GDP, which had been trending at about 2% for several years prior to the virus's onset. And and what about corporate earnings growth, which, when all said and done, is the major driver of stock prices, correct? Uh, That's right. So it's interesting. The current profile of corporate earnings growth for stocks is similar right now to GDP for the economy. S&P 500 operating earnings for calendar year 2020 are going to take a major hit versus where they were in 2019, Uh as in probably about down – 15% 15% for the year. Hmm. But then in 2021, all of that could be fully recovered and more with profits perhaps increasing about 25% or so off of that lower 2020 base, of course. But still, like GDP, once again, reaching pre-COVID levels. So, Tom, I'm now remembering a conversation we had last summer in which you drew an analogy to a well-known 1980s movie. Yes, Back to the Future. So, so yeah, so real quick on that one again. Yes. So we get back to where we were before COVID on both GDP and corporate earnings. But in doing so, we now have lower interest rates. At some point, we'll have fiscal economic stimulus of about a couple of trillion, monetary stimulus of more than 100 billion monthly. And you have, in my opinion, a pretty strong case for higher growth in the economy, a higher rate of earnings growth and more favorable comparisons of that earnings growth to no interest cash, all of which could be quite good for stocks as the year moves forward. I like that scenario. Um, You got anything else on stocks for 2021? Uh, Yes, I think we could finally see catch-up between value and growth stocks. As we know, over the past decade, growth has just decimated value. Uh, But I think we could finally start to see a regression to the mean, uh, which could be very meaningful for value stocks. What what would drive that? Well, a a few things. As I mentioned a minute ago, before COVID-19 hit, we were looking at trend economic growth over the past decade of only about 2%. So -hmm. that created a uh, what we call a scarcity of growth type of market, so to speak, Mm -hmm. which hurts value stocks in comparison to growth stocks. So if we pick up the longer-term trend to, let's say, 3%, uh, that should be a very good rising tide for value. Okay. Uh, Second, the vaccines could create a shift in consumer behavior helpful to value stocks. A lot of the big gains in in the growth stock universe have come from a concentrated group of, quote-unquote, stay-at-home 
tech stocks that have benefited mm-hmm. from sheltering and quarantines, that could change as the vaccines get more people out and about, potentially driving a rotation into value. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, even though we're in a lower for longer short-term interest rate environment, higher economic growth could drive longer-term interest rates higher, steepening the yield curve, which is good for bank stocks, and they comprise a healthy portion of the value stock indexes. Finally, mm-hmm. as all of these types of dynamics come together, the market could start to focus on the big valuation differentials between growth and value stocks, uh, which are now near uh, historic gaps. So okay. everyone's sort of been waiting for this big relative move for value versus growth. And it just hasn't seemed to happen in recent years. But this year looks like it could be setting up uh, better than any of the past several years. Mm, That's interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. Um, So, Tom, shifting gears just a bit here. You have a section of your market outlook that's dedicated to what you call the election aftermath. Uh, The election was a big focus in the markets over the past year. Yes, it was. Uh, And as it approached, two major concerns were kind of dogging the markets. And Uh uh, those were, uh, first, uh, a potentially contested election, sort of like the year 2000, uh, that that, that could create the type of uncertainty that markets don't like. And the second Mm -hmm. was the quote-unquote blue wave scenario, where Joe Biden won the presidency and the Democrats gained seats in the House of Representatives and regain control of the Senate, which Mm -hmm. would guarantee not only sort of a one-party government in Washington, which markets historically have not really liked, but Mm -hmm. also increase the probability of higher taxes in the form of President-elect Biden's expected tax plan that the markets uh, also might not be too keen about. So so the first fear of a contested election. Yeah, it didn't happen. Uh, Of course, President Trump has contested the results in uh, some of the battleground states uh, that were close, but he and his legal team uh, didn't make any real headway, and uh, the Electoral College results uh, were not impacted. Okay, and what about the blue wave? Well, there was certainly was not a true blue wave by any means. The Republicans okay. gained seats in the House of Representatives and are now uh, actually very much in striking distance to regain the majority in the midterm elections of 2022. But more importantly, While it looked as though the Republicans had held their majority control of the Senate uh, initially after election night, that now won't be fully decided until January 5th Mm -hmm. when Georgia holds two runoff elections. And if the Democrats win them both, the Senate will be tied at 50-50 and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will be able to break any ties, basically giving the Democrats the majority. And so the market's focus on all of this? Uh, well, two things, in my opinion. First, if the Democrats regain control of the Senate by winning these two runoffs, I think it increases the likelihood President-elect Biden could get his expected tax plan passed in, which, sometimes in, sometime in 2021 or 2022. Which the, the market may not like that. Right. This plan, as it was summarized by the Biden campaign prior to the election, would likely rescind a good part of the Trump tax cuts of 2017, Mm -hmm. as well as a number of other provisions the markets may not like. Uh, Perhaps the top of that list 
would be raising the marginal corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%, but it's also expected to have higher personal uh, tax rates uh, for top bracket earners, uh, higher capital gains and dividend tax rates at certain thresholds, higher inheritance taxes, and a 12% Social Security payroll tax. That, uh, that sounds like it could be a pretty big change to the tax code. Yeah, and, and there are a slew of estimates as to how much these changes could add up to over the next decade in mm-hmm. terms of additional taxes paid, most of them in the 25 to $3.5 range. So when breaking this all down, there is likely enough in this pending plan, if passed and signed into law, to potentially create an adverse reaction from the markets, at least in my opinion. Got it. And the second. The second is the simple fact that historically speaking, over the past 40 years, the market has favored a split party government between the president and Congress. Ronald Reagan spent all of his eight years with a Democrat House of Representatives and the final two years also with a Democrat Senate. And during those eight years, the S&P 500 averaged just under a 16 percent annualized return. Bill Clinton spent six of his eight years with the Republican House and Senate. And during those six years, the S&P 500 averaged better than 21%. Mm. And Barack Obama also spent six years with the Republican House and Senate. And the S&P 500 posted better than a 12% annualized return during those years. Mm -hmm. So while clearly there was a lot of other things going on during the tenures of those three presidents, and it would be foolish uh, for me to claim that all or even – most of those result of those return profiles were attributable to the political party composition the way I was in Congress. So I'm definitely not saying that. Okay. But I think there is enough of a correlation to infer that the market over the past 40 years appears to have a preference toward split party power in Washington, yeah. probably based on the concept that the market actually likes gridlock in the sense that uh, nothing can really stray too far to the right or to yeah. the left. That's interesting. That makes sense. So when you combine these two factors, likelihood of a higher tax plan and the market's preference for a balanced government between the parties, if the Democrats do win both runoff elections on January 5th, it could add to that early of the year downside risk and volatility we were mentioning a few minutes ago. And of course, as always say, Patrick, this is a market observation, not a political opinion. Right. So January 6th, that's certainly a day to mark on our calendars. Uh, yes, it is. Okay. Now, you also have a section on the Fed and interest rates, which, of course, intersect with a lot of what we've already talked about. But any any quick thoughts here? Yes. The Fed was really the first to recognize the real risk and pending economic wreckage. COVID-19 was about to wreak on the economy when they slashed the Fed funds rate from 1.5% to zero last March. So I don't think they'll be raising rates again any time in the foreseeable future, not until any remnants of COVID-19 are well into the rearview mirror. My read is we are clearly in a lower for longer short-term rate environment, lasting at least into 2023, and perhaps further than that, and this should be a tailwind for the broader markets. We also see the Fed continuing its liquidity-based monetary stimulus of about $120 billion a month in large-scale treasury bond and mortgage-backed security purchases. That's about $1.4 trillion annually uh, that we stay that we see staying in place throughout all of 2021. 
also should be very much a tailwind for the markets as well. And with the economy recovering at the pace we think it likely will, we see longer-term rates probably moving up. And we have a target range on the 10-year Treasury yield of 0.75% to 1.35%, probably heading toward the upper bound as the year progresses. So so lower for longer, full speed ahead on large-scale asset purchases by the Fed, and the yield curve steepens. Bingo. And, and the credit markets had quite a comeback this year. I mean, where do you see them in the year ahead? Yes, everyone talks a lot about the big recovery in stocks since last spring, but credit has had a really amazing run, too. Mm. At the end of March, high yield spreads were just below 11%, and it looks like we'll be finishing the year in the lower 4% range. Investment-grade spreads were, had reached 4% in March, and now are just above 1%. Think about that mm. for a minute. High-yield bonds are now trading basically where investment grade was trading nine months ago. <laughs> That's wild. It is. It really is. So our thinking here is that credit fundamentals have really improved, but the credit spreads now reflect that. So categorically speaking, bond investors should probably not expect much better than coupon-type total returns for this year from both of these asset classes. Mm-hmm. Probably about 5% for high yield and maybe 2 3% for investment grade. But with that said, I think there has probably never been a better time or opportunity for active bond managers to really prove their value. Yeah. Right now, we have low rates and tight credit spreads. So investors, I believe, are really going to have to look to experienced active managers in order to achieve total returns in excess of coupon rates. Okay. So, and finally, what about the international markets? Uh, Well, we are coming off uh, just about the worst year on record for global growth as worldwide GDP will probably finish 2020 contracting by about negative 4.5%. However, we think it could be an advantageous time to establish or increase allocations uh, to international emerging market equities. The reason we say that is, the prospect of directional change back to positive growth in 2021 at higher rates than we've seen in years. So if global growth can meet, let's say, the International Monetary Fund's forecast of 5.2% and advanced economies can reach about 4% and emerging markets about 6%, all sort of reflecting where consensus expectations uh, are right now, and all being well above the 2020 negative growth levels, mm-hmm. uh, then I think it could be a good year for both international developed and developing markets. But uh, like in the U.S., the early part of the year could get tough, and mm-hmm. international investors may need to hang in there. Uh, but if they do, the end result uh, could wor- work out well for them. Okay, so we've covered a lot here, Tom. Do you have any parting words as we begin the new year and we look ahead to 2021? Yes, we think it could be a very good year for the markets, but might not necessarily start out that way. Okay. We think the keys to watch for are economic and corporate earnings recoveries, okay. continuing accommodative monetary policy from the Fed, mm-hmm. and fiscal stimulus from Congress at some point. Okay. If most of these factors progress, as we think they might by about springtime, we could have a very good setup regardless of what happens early on. Thank you, Tom, and cheers to 2021. Yes, Patrick, here's to 2021. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 
The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. economies, and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. Economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risk. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. 265-610.